The China Global South podcast is supported in part by the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg and by our subscribers. Thank you. If you'd like to subscribe for daily news and exclusive analysis about every aspect of China's engagement in Africa, Asia, and throughout the developing world, go to chinaglobalsouth.com forward slash subscribe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China Global South podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Podcast Network. I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by China Global South's francophone editor, Christian Geronima, from the beautiful island of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. A very good afternoon to you, Geronima. Good afternoon to you, Eric. Giro, I'm thrilled that you're able to join us on the show today because for the past week or so, you and I have been having just the most spirited conversations about everything that's going on in the African mining space, especially this week, given the fact that many of the world's leading mining executives and also many of the world's largest government mining officials are in Cape Town, South Africa, to attend the African Mining Indaba, which is, for those of you not familiar, this is the largest confab of mining executives in Africa every year. It's an annual event. It's a big to-do. There's a lot of talk coming out of the U.S. on this. We're going to dive into that. We're also going to talk about a new book that has come out in the U.S. that's getting a lot of buzz. The author's on Joe Rogan. He's been on Fox and CNN and all over the place. So a lot of talk about Congolese mining. And Joe, given the fact that you come from the DRC and you follow this, you are by far the perfect person to give us some analysis on this. Also, Giro, you wrote last week for our newsletter and for our subscribers a fascinating analysis on the new U.S. Memorandum of Understanding with the Zambian government and the DRC government for mining cobalt and copper. So we're going to get your take on this. All of this is part of the new U.S. effort to try and catch up with the Chinese in critical minerals. The Chinese have done uh, really just an incredible job in many respects at getting a 20-year head start in building key supply chains for cobalt, rare earths, lithium, and any number of the metals and minerals that are absolutely essential for the transition to green mobility and the green economy. So let's start there. That's a good setup for the African mining in Daba. I'm going to focus now on the comments of Jose Fernandez, who's the Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment. He's the latest high-ranking U.S. official to go to Africa. America's top diplomat for Sub-Saharan Africa, Mali Fee, is also on the continent this week. And for those of you who've been following our Africa show for the past few weeks, we've been talking about how there's just been a parade of American officials. Most recently, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who's the ambassador to the United Nations, she was just there last week. And then prior to that was U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. So these are all commitments that the Biden administration made at the U.S.-Africa Leader Summit back in December, that they're going to be more engaged, and they seem to be delivering on that. Now, Fernandez gave the keynote address at the Indaba on Monday. And it's interesting because in his remarks, which I'm going to play you some excerpts from, you can hear that Fernandez and none of the other U.S. officials who spoke at the Indaba ever mentioned the word China by name, not once. But you can tell that the C word was on their minds. Boy, you can tell. I mean, they are really pushing hard to differentiate themselves. And the reason why is because everybody in Washington knows they've got a critical resource mining issue when it comes to China. They know that China dominates certain verticals like rare earths and cobalts, and now it's moving fast to dominate the lithium space. All of these, again, are critical, critical, absolutely essential in order to power the green revolution. But the U.S., the approach that they're taking is that they're not going to take China on, you know, alone by themselves. I think they've acknowledged that they just don't have the ability and the capacity to do that. So what they've done is they've built a coalition that they mobilized last year. They announced it last June. And this is what Fernandez is really hitting home as a key differentiator between the U.S. and, again, China, who he didn't mention by name. But you know that's who he's talking about. So let's kind of dive in first to get this piece of background on this coalition. And that's a scene setter for the rest of our conversation. Last June, we launched the Mineral Security Partnership, the MSP, with a total of 12 partners, Australia, Canada, Finland, France, Japan, the Republic of Korea, 
Norway, Sweden, the United Kingdom, the United States, and the European Union. And today, we're pleased to announce that we have a 13th member because Italy has joined our partnership. The MSP will tackle the critical minerals challenge with four lines of effort. First, sharing information about potential projects. Secondly, promoting investment and financing. Third, expanding recycling opportunities in critical minerals. And lastly, adopting high ESG standards. And in pursuing all of these goals, we will enlist both our public and our private sectors. Building on this foundation, the MSP aims to benefit all parties involved and add higher value activities such as downstream processing and recycling, in addition to extraction. In pursuing all of these goals, adhering to high ESG principles will be our calling card. Okay, Giraud, so there is the MSP. That is a critical piece of the U.S. platform, and not just the U.S. Again, the Koreans have a lot at stake here. The Europeans do as well. You've been following the MSP since it was announced last year. Again, they aren't specifically saying this is about China, but everybody knows that it's absolutely about China. Yes, exactly. The MSP has been launched last June and it was announced by the State Department and it was really presented as an, in, an initiative led by the U.S. to really try to move forward in the supply chain of those critical mining minerals. So they enlisted many countries as Joseph Fernandez has said in his statement. And in September last year on the sideline of the 77th UNGA, uh, United Nations General Assembly, they had a meeting where they invited some producing African countries. Among them we had the DRC we had Zambia, we had Mozambique, and we had some other producing countries. So the discussion was how to extend, of course, the MSP to those African countries. And what was really surprising, I remember I wrote a paper on that during that time. I was questioning if in that vision, the MSP is going to extend to include countries like the Zimbabwe and the DRC. By the way, Zimbabwe was not invited. But today, when Jose Hernandez was announcing that story, you, you notice that those African countries were not still not included. So I think the discussion is still on the way with those African countries to see how they're going to work and how they're going to move together. And when you talk with different mining ministers and officials on the continent who took part of that meeting, they would keep on telling you, yeah, we had that feeling it was all about China, even though the C word was never really clearly pronounced, but we all had our understanding that, yes, it was all about China at the end. So, at the same stand, it seems it was about China, but it was not said. Some of them expressed the idea that we don't want to be put in a position where we have to choose between Chinese and the US and the Western companies. But that's the general sentiment that we have on the continent about this China-US rivalry that's not spilling out in the mining sectors. So yeah, that's pretty much what we have to keep in mind about the MSP so far. And we still have to wait on the concretes action that needs to be taken about that topic. Now, one of the things that you heard in Fernandez's speech was the mention of ESG, which is the acronym for Environment, Sustainability, and Governance. And this is going to be a key theme in how the U.S. differentiates itself from the Chinese in Africa, but also in other parts of the world. Now, the perception in the United States, and I guess elsewhere too, is that ESG concerns and also labor, human rights, all of that, that doesn't matter to the Chinese. And again, I think that's a pretty outdated narrative. The Chinese, again, I don't want to sit here, we're not kind of shilling for the Chinese here, but it is oversimplifying it to suggest that Chinese manufacturing now is the way it was 20, 30 years ago. And we're going to dive into the question of child labor in the cobalt mines later in the program. But again, you're going to hear these themes in what Fernandez has to say. So let's take a listen to, again, another outtake of Fernandez's keynote address where he's focusing again on this question of ESG, environment to sustainability, as a differentiator against the Chinese. Now, a number of you in the audience, uh, some cynics, will ask, what do we mean by high ESG principles, and why should we care? So let me take the second question first, because I think that the answer as to why we should care is pretty straightforward. This is not altruism. This is not altruism. We care because sustainable projects require sustainable growth, because investors demand it, and because consumers will insist on it. You see, experience tells us that economic development that only benefits a few is not sustainable. In fact, 
during Pope Francis's visit to the Democratic Republic of the Congo last week, he denounced the economic colonialism in his words that results in the DRC and others not benefiting from their immense resources. Well, I know that um, since I'm Catholic, you would not expect me to disagree with His Holiness. But believe me, the Pope has a point. Through our work on responsible mining, the MSP partners will move away from sustainable development towards a framework that prioritizes transparency, community welfare, and environmental protection. We want to involve the communities affected by potential projects in the decision-making process. And if you were to say that we're doing this to protect our bottom line, you'd be partly right. We've seen too many instances around the world, some going on right now in South America, where community oppositions has led to the closure of otherwise profitable mines. But it's not only about profits. In our meetings with potential private sector partners, it's become clear that our companies will not, will not engage in the race to the bottom. They won't make investments in projects that destroy precious rainforest, that are not committed to the remediation of mines, that require payoffs to government officials. They just won't do it. Their, their shareholders won't allow it, their customers will reject them, and our laws will punish such conduct. And they also know that they cannot win a race to the bottom. There's always a certain cognitive dissonance when you listen to American officials talk like this when they're overseas. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, your head just kind of like, and wait till you hear some of the comments we have coming up later on. This idea that American shareholders and American stakeholders and the American consumer will not tolerate abuses of the environment and labor is just, I mean... I don't know. These are the lies that people tell themselves so they can sleep at night. But if you walk into a Walmart and see where any product is sourced in a Walmart, the ESG on those products is crap in for the most part. And I know this because I live in Vietnam and I've lived in China for a long time. And I know exactly how the corporate social responsibility inspections have gone in factories that supply the American consumer with all sorts of things. So this idea that it isn't a race to the bottom because it's just, and again, when you think about where does American food come from? Exactly. Uh, you know, it's picked by illegal labor oftentimes, and it's picked in substandard conditions. We have to tell ourselves these things. And then this idea that the United States, and I'm not pooping on the United States here in order to defend China. What I'm frustrated about is that if you're going to make the argument, at least be honest about it. And when we talk about the history of American companies in Africa from Chevron, you know, down the line and Freeport McMoran and others, <laughs> these were not angels by any stretch of the imagination. But Giraud, there were some interesting things that he said there. Number one, the reference to economic colonialism that he quoted the Pope. Who else is he talking about there? That, to me, was the reference to the China thing. I don't think he's talking about Glencore in the Swiss. No, of course he's talking about the Chinese. You know, the big great devil that everybody wants to pick on. Yeah, when you talk about mining, you talk about investment, you talk about child labors and everything, all those ESG troubles. One country's come in mind in China. No one else, of course. I mean, again, the, you know, I admire what the Americans are saying. I really do. I think this is what should be said. I just don't think there's enough... I don't know. It's just the cognitive dissonance there. Okay, let's just keep going here. Let me just plow through this because, and again, I, I feel like people are going to walk away from this conversation that we're having thinking that by criticizing the Americans, we're somehow defending the Chinese. And I just, I really, really want to make the point that that's not the case here. But the Americans have put themselves out there, so we're going to be dissecting what they're saying. But here, let's listen to another senior U.S. official from the State Department. This is Amos Hochstein, who's the special envoy and coordinator for international energy affairs, and he also leads the Bureau of Energy Resources at the State Department. He did a chat, a kind of a more informal chat, not a speech, at the Indaba, and he's talking about a new contract between U.S. mining companies and African stakeholders. Yeah, look, when I talk about learning from mistakes of the past, that's not just about Africa, that's about the United States. We have to show up in a way that is a partnership, that means that we bring resource, financial resources, expertise resources, human resources, and partnership where we're not just coming wanting to get something and leaving, yeah. but rather coming and investing and in, let's set this partnership. 
We're not here demanding anything. We're here offering, saying that we need the resource, but we want to have this partnership. And, and why would it be different? One, I think countries can say, if you're going to come invest, if you want to own resources, well, you got to make sure that you're not employing our children, that you're paying fair wages, not fair wage for what you perceive to be what you're willing to, what you're able to get, but what an international standard for a fair wage with health benefits and pension and retirement and investment in the community. If you're not willing to do that, we don't want you in our country as an investor because we did that before and it didn't work. It made a few people rich and kept everybody else poor. So I think that's what we want to come. We want to say, let's, let's think about this. You're at the ground floor of the energy transition. These are the early years. There's so much abundance of resources in Africa that we all need. So let's have a new contract that says that companies will invest in the community, that the government will set up these funds, and we are willing to be helpful. I am, again, I'm not trying to tell someone I'm here only for altruism. We need these resources in the United States, and we need them around the world. And we want them to be from as a diverse a platform of countries around the world as possible. But we have such a critical need to have this be a success for African countries. And that's why we want to come here with money, we want to come here with expertise, and we want to come here with development partnership. Man, there's a lot to unpack there. Like, there's so much to talk about. I mean, when he said we're going to learn from the past, you are a Congolese. Yes. Okay. And when I hear a senior State Department official talking about learning from the past in Africa, yeah, you, you got to think to yourself, do you think the Americans have any understanding of what they did to your country? That the assassination of Patrice Lumumba in 1961, the installation of... Mobutu Sese Seiko, that was in my lifetime. I don't think that's what he's talking about when he's saying we have to learn from the past. Exactly. And learning from the past, I don't think he's also talking about the fact that in 2019, they agreed on an election that was clearly rigged, that that was not reflecting what the Congolese wanted. But somehow the U.S. government was like, that's OK, we're going to work with that government because and later on they say they seen him as a partnership. So I don't think they really talk about those stands that the U.S. took that somehow enabled those bad governance and bad economic choices, bad posture that the Congolese government took that later on led to the country into poverty. So I don't really think that he's talking about that. So when they say they're learning from the past, I'm really kind of wondering, did they learn from those political choices they've made that created condition for bad governance that today they're coming to say, you know, we are against bad governance that's happening in your country. So I really wonder if, if he has that in mind. Yeah, it's hard to. But also when he was talking about this idea of pension and labor rights. I was like, um, do, do you actually know that most American workers don't get a pension and that we don't get any of those benefits? And But again, this is the cognitive dissonance when you listen to this stuff, that they are talking about things that they won't do themselves at home. You know, American workers don't get any of that stuff. I mean, but I know what he's trying to do. What he's trying to do is he's trying to say that we... Or insist on being different than the Chinese. So the Chinese don't do that. So this is what we insist. But the idea that says, if you're not going to offer a pension, and you're not going to offer, you know, not even local wages, but higher than local wages is what he said, international wages. Can you imagine that happening in the DRC? That's my question. When I heard him, I was like, man, I mean, do you talk about international wages based on what? U.S. standard or Norway standard or Canada standard in the mining industry? Do you really believe that if you come with all those promises that you want to put, you want to bring in DRC with Canadian standard or Australian standard, would you really believe that all those mining companies will be willing to come and work in DRC with all these structural and governance issues because we tend to forget the cost of doing mining in those countries. So sometimes when you bring all those promises, you have to really put them in context of the country you're talking about. And for me, when I was hearing him, I was like, this is a lot of talk, a lot of talk that really doesn't match what really was happening. I remember even when there was like Freeport McMoran, an American company, 
that sold his mining to Chinese company in 2015, I think when he was talking about learning from the past, I think he was referring to that. But even when Freeport McMoran was there, Freeport McMoran was not paying based on international wage standard. They were paying much better, true, but they were not paying based on US and Australian mining sector standards. So when you're talking about that, it's for me, the dissonance that you're talking about, it comes to touch upon and question the sincerity of what he's saying is he just saying for for making political statement or is he really serious into we want to come with concrete solution we want to come with real solution that can be implemented on the ground that can really change people's life that's really and those solution needs to be put in the context of the country where you're coming so when i hear that a lot of political talk, not really feasible, concrete solution because himself was talking about that in his own country, the U.S., workers, they don't have that. So when you come and now you say, I'm going to bring it to the U.S. in the mining industry, that becomes something else. Hard to believe. Okay, so let's flip the script here then and talk about the Chinese for a little bit. You've done quite a bit of research on Chinese mining labor practices. Yeah. We've all seen the videos that came out last year and the year before of horrific practices by Chinese mining companies in terms of, you know, some abuses of workers. What is your understanding in terms of what it's like at the major industrial mines? That's the Sikomines, the CNMC, the China Mali, the, the TFM mine. These are these massive cobalt and copper mines that employ thousands of people. How representative are those videos and the accusations of poor working conditions to the reality based on what you've seen and what your sources tell you? We have many reports from NGO, local NGOs, people on the ground telling you the working condition, the, the relationship there with Chinese workers and with Chinese managers and local workers are really not that great. You know, some are really complaining. I remember talking with some NGOs when they were talking about Freeport McMoran project and taking Fungurumi. When it was under Freeport, the conditions were better. So when the Chinese came, China Muli Bedam came and took over the project, they cut so many social advantages, they cut so many things that the conditions... The working condition lowered comparing to what the American company, the Freeport McMoran, was offering. But yes, we have those real social issues where you have really bad conditions. But not to the extent to say the bulk of the worker, 80% of them or the majority of them are really, they're, they're not treated well. Because statistically speaking, if it's the case, the mine will not operate correctly. The business will not keep on going further. And plus, if it keep on going, you're going to have so much social unrest that at some point, the mine will stop. So, you have those kind of issues happening because, you know, the way the Chinese working philosophy works with the Congolese philosophy is not the same. You have all those social differences, the perception of how hard work should be done. I remember there was a podcast or an article that you featured a few years back when they were talking about the Chinese working culture chiku, like you know you have to support hard work you really have to, to really work hard the sacrifices Some that kind of philosophy you don't really always find it in the Congolese social context that's come and create those hard difficult conditions to work and the cultural differences the languages so many issues at the end that create those hard difficult conditions but to the extent of saying that the Chinese company are treating the work really bad, that will not be a fair description of the situation. And there was a big study done on this by the UK NGO RAID. I forget what RAID stands for, but it's, it's something cute. And they did uh, about worker rights. What did they say? What was your recollection of their findings? Yes, RAID was working with different NGOs in Kolwezi, Kolwezi, which is in Lualaba, the world capital of Cobalt. They had some issue related to worker violation. For example, some workers, they were complaining by the fact that they were, you know, they were let go prematurely. I mean, illegally, they were claiming that they had some work accident on site so they wanted to be compensated by that they had those kind of social cases where workers were complaining about those kind of situation and raid conducted a research on that and they helped those ngos you know getting the case to the court and the, one of the cases where the courts you know acknowledged that the workers was right and they deserved the compensation they should be getting from the mining company so they had those social cases happening related to the mining industry in drc with some of them even involved those companies like Glencore. Some of them involved China Molibedum. So you have those kind of different cases happening there. 
Yeah, so the other thing that they've been talking about, as you heard on a number of different cases, is the question of corruption. Yes. And this idea that American companies are going to come in because of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and not be corrupt. Now, it's very important to remember that the FCPA is out there, and it's more of the fear for companies of getting arrested or caught under it than the actual act of getting caught, because fewer than a dozen companies every year get ensnared by the FCPA. But again, the fear is that you're going to get snagged by it. But it's just very important that, again, we put some context to the American you know, line here in the sense that, again, they're implying that corruption is something exclusively done by the Chinese. And let me just remind you that last December, okay, we're talking what, Two months, not even two months ago, December 5th, the Congolese government fined the Swiss mining giant Glencore $180 million over corruption charges. Okay, and remember that Glencore is larger in terms of their mining output from the Congo than any of the Chinese entities. And again, when you hear the Americans going off about corruption and bad practices and all these different things, you know they're not talking about Glencore. So again, it's this cognitive dissonance that is just hard to get your head around. Let's kind of wrap up our discussion on the Americans here. And again, I know we've gone on quite a bit, but these comments are fascinating because they provide some very crucial insights into how U.S. government, the think tank community, the policymaking community, and increasingly the public is framing this issue of critical mining in places like the Congo. So again, let's go back to the Indaba and listen to some comments from Amos Hochstein. Again, he is the special presidential coordinator for global infrastructure and energy security. And this time, Giraud, he's talking about your home country and your hometown in Kinshasa. I was in Kinshasa just, you know, a few months ago, uh, and I, I think DRC is a great example of the kind of opportunity that exists. And let's not let DRC look back in a few years and say, you know, I can pick any oil country in Africa that has not succeeded in the way that the great hopes were in the 1960s and 1970s when they discovered the oil. And now we're 60 years later without... The, the GDP there is not where it needs to be for a country that's produced that vast wealth over that period of time. And I can tell you, I've, I've met now with President Chisichetti a number of times and with his government officials, and I, I do think we have a great opportunity of saying we don't want to have the kind of labor force that is currently trying companies from the outside are forcing upon us. Let's look for the best in class because it's the people's resource at the end of the day. This is not somebody coming to the country, in any country in Africa, and saying, I'm going to innovate, I'm going to create something new. No, I'm going to come and take the resource that exists below the land that you live on. It is your resource of your people, and I'm going to take it out of the ground, and I'm gonna, it's going to end up being part of fueling the, the global economy. Well, for that, there needs to be a social contract yeah. of what does that mean, what are those companies going to do there? I mean, is he having that same conversation with the Dutch and Shell in Nigeria? <laughs> I just, I don't understand what they're saying. I mean, I know what they're saying, but it's just bizarre that the 1960s, those were the Western oil companies that were doing the exploitation. And it's just, he's pretending as if, you know, the U.S. government and the Europeans had nothing to do with this. Yeah. And that the Africans, you stupid idiots, wasted this opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I, I just, I can't figure this out. Exactly. It's not taking into account the geopolitics of the time, the role that the U.S. played in the geopolitic context of the time, explaining all of that. It's like, I don't know, it's just so frustrating. That's why when he mentioned about learning from the mistake of the past, it's like you forget that, you know, you gave Mobutu Sasiseko in, in Zaire so much money that he embezzled that. Despite the fact that you knew he was embezzling the money, you kept on giving him money, giving, giving, knowing that he was not governing the country well because he was an ally into that geopolitical context. So that kind of simplistic narrative of presenting the situation is like, that's not accurate. It's like, my friend, you have to be accountable for like, yeah, we had a part of like what was happening, why those rich resource country, they did not benefit from their own resources because somehow we're supporting regime that was close to us even though we know those regimes were not by governing those countries effectively. That's the reality of it. I mean, and then we're not even talking about the French and France Afrique and Elf and Gabon and all, you know, 
Okay. So again... And we don't even talk about the consequence of those governance that led to indebtedness that those countries at the end when they lost so much, they were so in-depth that at the end when the IMF came, we proposed them, you know, to relieve their debt. The next country they look at was like China. Now China, you can't come on because we need your finances. We don't need those Western finances anymore. That's led us to the situation that Africa is today with those Chinese financing and all that they're talking about. So that's another story for another day. Okay. Again... The point here is not to be a raving anti-American lunatic here and just to keep bashing the Americans, but let's have an honest conversation. This is just not an honest conversation. I mean, and so, and, and to me, it's not credible because everybody knows in the DRC what happened, right? It's not a secret. Everybody knows what the Americans did with Mobutu and with Patrice Lumumba, okay? So to pretend that it didn't happen and to pretend that the United States has its hands clean and that the Chinese, and again, yes, the Chinese are problematic in many, many ways. We know that the Chinese facilitate corruption. We know that the Sicko Means deal was corrupt. We know that this is happening and there's evidence everywhere about it. But when you are not honest in the approach, it undermines the whole platform. And that's, I guess, where I'm coming from on this. And I think, but I know this stuff sells in Washington and they sit there and they go to meetings and they go on TV and it's just, everybody's talking about child mining and corruption and abuse and that how the Chinese are the bad guys and we're the good guys. And that's what's coming out in these speeches. And those overly simplistic narratives, man, they're gonna run into big problems. How many American mining companies, by the way, just for our reference, are active today in the DRC? None. The last one was Freeport McMurray in 2015. He sold his mining, taking from mining to Chinese company. And as far as you know, from studying the Chesakadi approach to how he's managing the relationship between the Chinese and the Americans, is he buying this? Is he abandoning the Chinese? Does he think this is a good thing? Where does Chesakadi fall down on this line? There is a lot of political big talk, you know, this is Congolese politics talking, you know, there are big talk, we want to do things better. But in fact, there is a less, less things that's really happening. A few weeks ago, there was a report from Jeune Afrique that was talking about how, because Chisekedi has kind of changed his member of the, in this cabinet. So the report was talking about how some Chisekedi, a member of his own cabinet, was still dealing with bad deals with Chinese, with different mining companies. So yeah, there is a lot of political big talks, but in fact, things are still the same. So the Chinese aren't going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. They're going to keep on, you know, pushing. And because, you know, Congo is important, so they're going to adapt eventually to the new environment, but they're not going anywhere. We're going to have to see if this MSP, what was that, the Mineral Security Partnership? Security Partnership, Okay, yeah. whether that actually produces results, whether it's not the Americans alone, but the coalition that will come in there. You know, talking about the MSP, for me, I think the Americans, you know, having these large coalitions, because they have, like, they have money in countries in that coalition. You have Australia, you have Canada. So... I think they might be using those two countries, Canada and Australia, to kind of put them in that business with the DRC to see how they can work. Because later on, he was talking about the financing, the, you know, the technical cooperation all. For themselves, they cannot do it directly. I think they're going to go through those big mining countries, Australia and Canada, to find a way how they're going to diversify the resources. He talked about the recycling. He talked about all those kind of elements. But there's also another element I think we needed to talk about is the fact that I even wrote about it a few days ago in my column about that, is the fact that in those approach, what are the part of the African, those African country agency? Because at some point, you're going to have to be able, if those countries think that the offer that the Chinese or the Chinese company are putting on the table are the much effective one, are they going to let those African countries go with the Chinese companies or they're going to force them to go with the Americans or the Australian companies that are going to be on the ground as well? That's also my question in those kind of, in this approach they're putting on the table. Very quickly, just want to wrap up our discussion about the Americans. One of the things that came up quite a bit at the Indaba was also this new deal, this MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, that Anthony Blinken signed last year. He's the Secretary of State among the Zambians, the Congolese, and the Americans. Okay, so this is a copper-cobalt agreement. It is an MOU, so it's not legally binding in any way, but... The Americans are touting this as their kind of new approach into Africa and this idea of trying to secure some of their supply chains for these critical minerals. You wrote about this last week. You spoke with some experts in D.C. about this. 
What is your bottom line on the viability of this MOU? My bottom line is there is still a lot of things to do for this MOU to become a real concrete action that the U.S. is taking into that uh, supply chain of critical minerals and EV batteries in DRC and Zambia. They're going to have to do a lot more than talking. As I said in my column, the MOU is not legally binding and uh, the MOU is going to have to move away from the political side of this MOU because we need to move from that geopolitical tool that it's used to counter China. I raised the question of how how much DRC and Zambia are going to have as agency in that discussion because the MOE is promoting as well to, you know, cost um, uh, cost effective much more uh, viable proposals that needs to be put on the table so my question was like if the chinese companies as i said earlier if they come and offer those cost effective projects with a much better technology because let's not forget china is, is way ahead in terms of refining processing cobalt and those critical miners so we have to assume that those chinese companies they have the technology right ahead at many countries so we, if they come with those proposals are the Chinese companies are going to be accepted under this framework or not? So those are the kind of questions I raised in the column to see how much effective that MO is going to be. We're also going to have to talk about the American private sector, how much the American private sector is really following up on that. And I had a talk with the U.S. expert on that. You know, the feeling in Washington is like there is a lot of political talk, as I said earlier, but American businesses are still looking from far because there's also the reputation damage that's linked with the core and uh, critical minerals in DRC that American companies are trying to stay away from. So it's going to be difficult to see that MOE become a real effective partnership or agreement between the three countries. What I just can't get my head around is this all this talk on clean mining, anti-corruption, highest labor standards. You're from the DRC. It's in many ways effectively a failed government. Yeah. The Chesakadi administration, many people just say he's the mayor of Kinshasa. He doesn't have an enormous amount of power out in the east and in the south. And, you know, he's got to basically share power with a lot of people. This explains a little bit as to why I think the Americans and the Europeans are going to have a problem. And you see Glencore, listen, they're not, apparently not, a, not afraid to pad the pockets of the people that need to be paid, okay? I mean, obviously, they when you get fined by... The Congolese government for corruption. <laughs> exactly. You must be really bad. Yeah. I mean, really, really bad. I mean... And the interesting part about the agreement that Glencore signed with the Congolese government is the fact that we pay you $120 million as fine, but the Congolese government needs to agree that they will not pursue any legal action further in that matter. It means that today, if the Congolese government comes to find out that there was another shady deal that happened with Glencore, the Congolese government say, I will not pursue legal action against Glencore anymore. So it tells you a lot about, you know, the context of how things were done. And when that Glencore deal happened, and for me, my criticism was like, no one in Washington, in London, in Paris said anything. Because the feeling was like, if we keep on pushing Glencore to, you know, to pay more fine in DRC, at some point the pressure is going to be, maybe might be become too much for Glencore to say, you know, guys, I'm just going to leave this country. If Glencore leaves the country, who's going to come? China is going to come. So, yeah. So Of course, of course. But again, this is a little bit like the outrage that the Europeans are having, and the Americans too, on Chinese debt issues in Africa and other parts where, again, they're very quick to single out the Chinese. So the German finance minister just uh, this over the weekend singled out the Chinese role in Ghana's debt, even though the Chinese account for just mm -hmm. 3% of Ghana's total public debt. He singled out the Chinese for their special responsibility here and made no mention whatsoever about the Eurobond debt which in many ways is significantly higher and is the source of a lot of the problems that the Ghanaians are finding. So again, this is why I think U.S. and European officials would have far more credibility in these conversations if they were equally critical of their own countries and their partner countries and saying, we're going to fix it, we're working on it. But then just to conveniently overlook those and focus in on the Chinese, again, please do not think that I'm saying this and somehow is to protect the Chinese and defend the Chinese. They can do that all on their own. I am suggesting that these arguments simply lack credibility when they're highly selective and they're clutching their pearls because of what the Chinese are doing and not what necessarily their own actors are doing. 
Very quickly before we go, I mean, you and I can go on like this for hours, but people don't listen to podcasts already. And I looked at the statistics. I mean, they listen to podcasts, but they don't want to listen for an hour and a half. But I saw the statistics and that like we have a big drop off of listenership at like 80%. So we're getting up to that 80%. And I don't want people to drop off right now. Yeah. Let's quickly talk about the departure this week of Chinese ambassador Zhu Jing. He is the envoy in many ways over his tenure for the past, I think, two or three years in Kinshasa. He was on the front lines with the U.S. in this fight, and he was not afraid to throw a punch back at the Americans. He's leaving. We don't know where he's going. He's just being rotated out as part of the normal diplomatic rotation that diplomats from all countries kind of go through. But he made a mark in many respects with his time in Kinshasa. And tell us a little bit about some of your reflections. You've been covering him for quite some time. You've had some interactions with him. Tell us what you think of Zhu Jing in his final week in the DRC. I think he's leaving DRC by tomorrow already, so he's going to be gone. So he's a very interesting Chinese ambassador, the the new kind of generation that we saw in Africa. He was really outspoken against uh, what everything was happening. I mean, against any geopolitical narrative comparing China and DRC and other Western country. He was not afraid, as you say, to throw punches to former American ambassador Mike Hammer or to former U.S. special envoy for the Great Lake region, Peter Pham. He was really outspoken about what China was doing in DRC that China was not there for geopolitical competition. So he was someone who was really out there giving a lot of press conferences, you know, talking to journalists. He was that kind of Chinese ambassador who was more assertive about Chinese position and Chinese role into the DRC. He was also not afraid to take some, you know, I would say controversial position because I remember when he was when he did his trip in DRC, in Katanga region, he visited one of the opponents of President Chisekedi, Fede, uh, Moise Katumbi. So it was kind of a delicate trip was like how a sensitive trip how he was able to make that trip and you know so that tells you a lot about the man himself he was really an interesting character to follow comparing to other chinese diplomats that we've been following all over the world jujing was one of a kind though yeah he much more outspoken than your average chinese diplomat a couple highlights of what's happened in the past few years while he was in the corner office there in kinshasa number one the Congo became the number one destination in Africa for Chinese foreign direct investment. Uh, at the same time, the all the controversies and the scandals and the investigations into Chinese corruption in the Sikomines deal and also in the renegotiation of the contracts with China Mali and some of the other mining companies, uh, that all happened under his watch. And in many ways, you saw the embassy take on the role as chief legal counsel and chief spokesperson for these Chinese mining companies. And it was really fascinating to watch the fusion. So China Mali, if I'm correct, I don't think China Mali is state-owned. And China Mali, it's not state-owned. It's not officially state-owned. Obviously, it has very close relationships to the state. But in many ways, that didn't matter, that Zhu Jing's defense of China Mali and defense of these Chinese companies didn't matter if they were you know, private or the state. He was there and he spoke out, you know, aggressively. And in many respects, I think he's weathered it. I mean, for all intents and purposes, those issues and that controversy from last year on the renegotiation of the contracts, that's behind us, at least for now. I mean, maybe after the election is over and if Chesakadi's in or if one of the rivals comes in, they'll bring that issue back up again. But it doesn't look like it. And let's be very clear that Zhu Jing was very good at building relationships with some of the rival politicians that could potentially replace Chesakadi. So even if Chesakadi loses, whoever kind of moves into the president's office will probably have a very good relationship with the next Chinese ambassador. Exactly. And just to add up in that story, like you don't have a fundamental anti-China politician in the RC. You don't have that. You don't have someone like even Michael Sata in Zambia later on became a Chinese person. But you don't have someone who have raised his voice, you know, Chinese are doing bad. No, no. Yeah, they have the criticism about the Chinese practices, but you don't have a fundamental anti-China politician in the RC. No. Let's close our discussion with a, a quick mention of a new book that came out, as I mentioned at the top of the show, Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives by Siddharth Kara. Let's put a disclaimer out front. Neither Giraud or me has read it yet. We both purchased it, so we're going to read it. I have a feeling yeah. it's not going to be an easy read. <laughs> Already, we're seeing on Twitter, 
experts in the field who are just ripping this thing to pieces. And one of the critiques that's come out is like a lot of basic facts about the Chinese are simply wrong in the book. And, you know, things like for the fact that they're calling Sikomins a Chinese consortium, when in fact it's not a Chinese consortium, it isn't a joint venture uh, between the Chinese and Zhekamins. And again, there's the, and it, it just, and while that seems small, right? But you think if you can't get something as basic as that right, then it makes you question so many of the other findings. But we need to go into this with an open mind. We can't listen to what the Twitter crowd said. We can't listen to what others have said, but we need to go into an open mind. Uh, you know, so we're going to read it. I'm going to try and extend an invitation for him to come on the show. Something tells me he's probably not going to want to come on the show, but we'll That's go. Right. We'll, maybe we'll maybe reach out to the publisher. Yeah. We'll reach out to the publisher. But it seems to be coming at a moment, Giro, when there's a narrative in conservative U.S. media about this idea of cobalt mining in the Congo, and it all comes from children. So the idea is that the iPhone in your pocket has blood cobalt on it that was mined by a child. Before we go, I think it's really important that we kind of lay this myth to rest because there's a difference between the artisanal mines, which are those awful, just mind-numbingly painful pictures that we see of children who are in fact mining and the industrial mines. Let's leave our conversation with you explaining what that is because that speaks to the book that Caro wrote. We have to put that in context. The context is the bulk, the huge bulk of cobalt industry, uh, mining in the OC are made by industrial mines. The bulk of them. We are talking about 90 to 95%. They are really huge mines. They're, they're made industrial. The reality is in those industrial mine sites, we also have you know, artisanal mining. And talking about that book, one of the pictures in the book that the, the book featured was the Shabara mine. The Shabara mine, artisanal mine, is the, one of the largest artisanal mining in the DRC. And the site of that artisanal mining is in the same mining concession of the Glencore Mutanda mining. But when you read the interview that he gave on, on the story, he didn't mention Glencore, but the story was riddled about the Chinese and the Chinese. And that tells you a bit for me when I was reading, there's like the kind of background narrative about that, but I'm going to put that aside. So the context is to, to just to let you know that the bulk of it is made of industrial mining. You have artisanal mining, that's true. According to different reports here, we're talking about it goes from 15 to 30% for some of them. In the bulk of of that, it's made something around seven, uh, 10% different numbers because we have so different reports that give you just margin. They don't give you a straight number about that. It also lacks, you know, the social context in which those artisan minings are happening. It's a difficult cohabitation between industrial mining and local communities. And in the midst of that, you have a weak government that's really not doing as much it needs to be to solve those kind of conflicts. So when it happens, industrial mining, like Glencoe, for instance, in the case of Shabara, just try to find an agreement between the local community and them and say, okay, we're going to let you stay there, do what you have to do, but don't come on the, on, the, on, the, on the industrial part of it. So when the artisanal miners do that, their product, they sell it to different, you know, to different third parties. Those third parties, you find the Chinese, you find the Indians, you find Lebanese, you find Pakistanis. And later on, those third parties, they go, they sell it to either big mines or either to refiners that are held by Chinese companies, most of them. So there is this complex Complexity that you need to take into account when you talk about that and to understand that it's not a simple told story that, you know, Chinese companies, industrial equals artisanal, cobalt industry equals child labors. That's not true. Okay, so I think the theme of our show today is that the simple narratives are something to be very careful of. They, especially in the Congo, don't work. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that, that is the theme. So... Listen, let's leave the conversation there. Uh, if people want to follow all the great work that you're doing on Projet Afrique Sheen, that's our French language website. You've got a podcast, you've got a newsletter, you've got a great Twitter feed. Give us a few of the links so that people can follow what you're doing, where you're covering quite a bit of these Congolese mining issues in French. So, yes. Yeah. So, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow us Projet Afrique Chine. It's uh, Afrique Chine, Afrique with a K on Twitter. It's also Afrique Chine on Facebook. You're also going to follow us on LinkedIn, Projet Afrique Chine. Or for the website, it's www.projetafriquechine.com, Afrique, normally, Q-E-E, 
shin.com you're gonna have a lot of the story that we covered on those different topics my personal account on twitter christian gero christian gero g-e-r-a-u-d in one word and uh, you're gonna find a lot of things we talk about congolese politics we talk about chinese investment in africa and in drc we talk about all of that yeah he rattled off a whole bunch of links don't worry if you didn't catch them all i've got them all in the show notes And it's very easy to find. Also, you can just go to ChinaGlobalSouth.com and you'll see Francais at the top. And that's where you're going to find all of Giraud's great work. So Giraud, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to join us today. It was really interesting. We're going to circle back to this mining issue later because obviously it's not going away. And we're going to cover some of the mining issues that are starting to unfold in places like South America and the lithium triangle. So that's another area that we're going to explore a lot more going forward. So for Jero Nima in Mauritius, I'm Eric Olander in Ho Chi Minh City. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China Global South podcast. Until then, thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Follow the China Global South project on Twitter at China GS Project and share your thoughts on today's show or head over to our website at ChinaGlobalSouth.com where you can subscribe to receive full access to more than 5,000 articles and podcasts. Once again, that's ChinaGlobalSouth.com.